Welcome to the Best of Seven Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Phillips. With me today, as always, is Kyle Coster, the managing editor of The Big Lead. Today, we are going to break down. We are getting close to the 2021 NFL Draft. We wanted to do a draft, an NFL Draft-centric uh, episode. And so we decided to break down what we thought were the seven best NFL draft picks of all time. And we're going to, what we define as best, we're going to sort of explain to you guys. We may both have different perspectives on it. And I think it's going to be interesting to see the tax we take on what we find as, you know, define as the best and how we came to those conclusions. So I welcome in Kyle now. Uh, are you a big NFL draft guy? Like, do you sit and watch the entire thing? Would you watch it if it wasn't for work? I mean, like, what it, where's, what's your draft history like as far as, you know, throughout your sports life? Well, yeah, I would say I'm pretty low uh, on the uh, on the percentile interest. Uh, however you want to chart that out, it's certainly not something that I circle and I look forward to every single year. Um, it's just one of those things. I've, I long made the argument that the draft, the NFL draft, the NBA draft, you could get the same out of it by looking in the newspaper the next day and see who went where to what team you didn't need the live experience. Um, as I've started to get older though, I think I've learned to appreciate the drama and appreciate the, um, you know, like it is exciting when a trade comes, it is great to get real time reaction and see what the consensus is and to remember those moments. And so much of the draft takes place uh, in between the picks. Like we can all talk about like when there's someone out there that they need to bring back to a green room because it's embarrassing that they're still out there. Like it like happened to Brady Quinn or whatever. My issue with the NFL draft and it's a personal issue. And I know there's a lot of people who grind tape and know all this, but I'm just not familiar with the players like one through 200. I and you're a big college football guy, which is, but I guess so many of them are so random. Yes, I am a big college football guy, but there's a different skill set between what works in college and what works in the pros. For and sure. I, and I have the same um, challenge when it, when it comes to basketball. I know who's a good college basketball player, but it's like when those things aren't valued in the NBA, I have a hard time understanding how you extrapolate out and, and, predict that. And, and I, I mean, really it's one of the things that, that teams front offices do that is underappreciated by fans, even people who really like sports like myself, uh, they have to be able to project what this person is going to be like as a professional athlete or five or six years, just like kind of a college, a college uh, coach is going to recruit a high school kid, try to figure out, okay, can they contribute as a junior or a senior? So as time is, as time has gone on, I've, gotten more interested in the process, but it's not something that I have uh, I'm raring to go when the day comes. Yeah. I, I, I do appreciate the analysis and I like it. I mean, it's different for me now because I don't have a team to root for. I was, for those who don't know, I was a chargers fan and then they moved to LA and I am no longer a chargers fan to say the least. Uh, so it was more exciting. I think that, that why people love the draft is there is the draw, the drama, there is the, insane level of preparedness of the people who were doing the broadcast. And, you know, you're in the seventh round and Mel Kuyper is telling you about a guy's parents' names, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy how good they are at their preparation. So I think it makes for good television, but I also think it's the ultimate, it's sort of that spring training feeling of like hope, you know, like you get a guy and it's like, he's going to like, we don't know. He could be the greatest cornerback of all time, you know? And, and I think it's that level of hope because nobody 
fans, as we sometimes do winners and losers of the NFL draft after the draft, nobody thinks their team lost. Like everybody thinks the guys they got are going to be amazing. And so I think that that's what the, the draw is to the draft for so many people. It's like, who are we going to get and how are they going to help us win a championship? And I think that uh, other than Jets fans, everybody feels like their team drafts well every single year and, you know, are then sorely disappointed. And I think that's why busts are such a big deal because people don't ever expect them. Well, it can be worse than being a Jets fan. You can be a Lions fan. It's true. And you have the institutional uh, pain of knowing that no matter how good of a player you get, it's not going to change things. And the likelihood that they walk away from the game at the age of 30 is extremely high. Um, so th- I think that it, that does play a part of why the NFL draft is not that exciting to me, because it's always, how are we going to ruin this transcendent talent? So I, I don't have the same optimism. I understand if you haven't been burned that many times before, why you can be, uh, excited and look forward to the future, but nothing good has ever really happened to me as an NFL fan. Uh, so the NFL draft is kind of another reminder about how much better other organizations uh, fare in it and, and are better at the, all business of football compared to the lions. <laughs> the, the sad, sad life of a lions fan here on display folks. All right, Kyle, well, I'll just kick this off and go with my number seven because I want to go first this time. I never get to go first. Um, and I've got Bart Starr at number seven. He was the 200th pick in the, and was this uh, taken in the 17th round of the 1956 NFL draft by the Green Bay Packers. 200th in the draft. And also the 17th round because the draft back then didn't have as many teams, so they just kept going. Uh, he led the Packers to five NFL championships, two Super Bowl wins. It was the MVP of both of the Super Bowls, the first two Super Bowls. Uh, he led the NFL in passer rating five times, was the, M- the league MVP in 1966. He's a Hall of Famer. In the eight rounds before he was selected, there was just one eventual Pro Bowler. One in the eight rounds before he was selected. So this wasn't the kind of thing where there was a rush on players and they took Bart Starr. They, they waited and waited and waited, and they took Bart Starr, and he wound up paying off as few draft picks ever have sort of the first uh, iconic quarterback of the NFL era uh, in, in the league and wound up being a hall of famer. And and if you get a hall of famer with the 200th pick, that's an incredible value. It doesn't matter what year it happens in. I have star on my list as well. Um, And I have him at number five and for all the reasons that you mentioned, but then also he was the face of that franchise. You're talking about, at a time where the NFL elevated its form to being in the Super Bowl. I mean, he was in the Ice Bowl. What clip do we remember from the Ice Bowl? Him plunging in for that touchdown. He was the Packers. He kind of embodied the grit yes. of that franchise. And he kind of served as a template for what it would become. Like it's That's really interesting to think about if they don't get Bart Starr and they get a lesser quarterback or they use that pick on someone who doesn't pan out and they try to figure out that position for the next 10 or 15 years, which can happen all the time in the NFL, right? How is the history of the green Bay Packers different? It's, it's completely pretty shocking. Different. It's pretty shocking to think about the margins these teams work on and all the amazing things that can happen when you find a diamond in the rough like that. And I think with, with, with star too, you got, he was a draw, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's a small market, but he was one of the biggest stars in the NFL because at that time, 
in order to be a star, it certainly helped to be on the winningest team. It was really, yes. it was really hard to be someone on, on an also ran you were known. Uh, but, but it was kind of like, it was, it was kind of like the original rings era, right? We kind of have the rings debate in sports about how, what, what's the greatest. And it doesn't mean anything if you don't win a championship, that's an old idea because it's been, because that's been used like on the MVP as well. It, it needs to be the best player on the best team. So I think with star, at 200th overall, I mean, think about the players that were drafted in front of him. Think about the time of the NFL this was happening. And I mean, you're probably talking about people who had summer jobs or secondary jobs, yep. plumbers, uh, carpenters, mechanics, stuff like that, that were drafted ahead of him. And we're talking about one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time going 200th. Again, it's so funny that you mentioned the 17th round because it's so funny to think about the NFL a draft lasting that long <laughs> yeah. now ESPN and the NFL, they would love that. And I think that there would probably still be an audience for that. If they wanted to rip through and let everybody, every team take 17 cracks at it. Uh, it, it could, it could definitely get some ratings. There were, uh, by the way, just to be clear, there were 30 rounds in that draft, 30 rounds in that draft. It's unbelievable, but you want to know what they probably got it done in like, two hours because yeah. often circumstance it was just like handing index cards to someone it was like they stripped away all the drama and they just got down to business but well and, and a note for people who don't understand why they lasted that long it's because they didn't pay guys enough that some of them went off you know would be on the roster one year and then go work a normal job so they would have to replace half their roster sometimes and that's why you have a 30 round draft so it, it is interesting and it's right i mean because you think of today when it's a seven round draft, I mean, that was 10 rounds before Bart star would have been so even selected. So he's an undrafted free agent today. Um, and, and some of the things you said about back then, it was definitely the rings era. It's well, because not every game was on television and the guys who got on television and won were the stars. And so you couldn't be, you know, Peyton Manning for his first, number of years where he was, you know, doing really well, but not winning championships and be the worldwide superstar. He was before he won a Super Bowl. You had to win to be that, that, that famous quarterback. And, and as you mentioned about, think about what would have happened to the Packers if they hadn't taken Bart star, the Packers whole brand is that they've always been competitive to some degree. They were the, one of the first, they were the first championship team and they've got this old school mentality as a franchise and even though they've won since then, it's still you hearken back to those first gritty days. You mentioned that he fit that gritty demeanor of, of Green Bay and of the Packers. And, and that's what made them famous and why a small market team has fans all over the world is because they won early and they became a symbol of the NFL. Yeah, I, and, and this will be a, a staple of our conversation going forward. The importance of the quarterback obviously needed to factor in at some level when you were going to slot people in on, on this list. Like getting a franchise quarterback remains the most important thing an NFL franchise could do. And, and able, being able to do that through the draft, especially when it's, when it's down on the list, there will be a, a guy who's going to be on both of our lists very high. I'm assuming it's kind of like the, the right answer that everybody would go yes. to uh, was a six round guy. Uh, but it really frees you up because, you, you know, one of the things that makes it seems obvious, but is almost worth stating while we're doing this exercise is if you can get your, 
number one, number two pick of the draft quarterback. If you did it all over again, if you could get that guy in the, in the fourth or fifth round, well, then you can use your earlier selections on other people to fill to out surround him. Yeah. It, it's common sense, but that's kind of why getting someone down the line uh, is so helpful. My number seven uh, fits the bill in a lot of ways. And that's Joe Montana. Yeah. it's Montana. It, but- Third round, 82nd overall in the 1979 NFL draft, which to me, when I reflected on that, that actually seemed like he slipped a lot. Yeah. Because we know that he was this fantastic collegiate quarterback at Notre Dame of all places, like the most visible uh, of all the colleges at the time. He had famous comebacks. His personality was well-known. It's funny to think about Montana at that time, through the lens of how we treat current quarterbacks, because he would be a home run. He handled pressure. He was good with the media. He, uh, he, he classic face of the franchise type guy. Exactly. He would be the, he would be someone like you would not, he would not fall outside the first six picks. Now, if they did the draft, even regardless of what his skill was, just because like he's that guy. So obviously his exploits are well known. He won four championships with the 49ers. He was to me, he was the guy uh, when we were growing up, he was the best quarterback. I feel like it wasn't even a debate. It was kind of like, who's the best quarterback? It was Joe Montana because he was the quarterback on the team that won the most. Now with time, maybe we've realized that Marino and Elway were more technically skilled or whatever, but the proof is really there when you talk about like we were, we were mentioned earlier about, about the rings. And in that draft, you have to wonder Again, like we mentioned with, we have to, like I mentioned with the Packers thing, like how many teams just kicked themselves because he was available and they saw like with their own eyes, what he could do in college. And yet they still weren't ready to do, uh, to make the move for him. Yeah. Montana's third on my list. I agree with the value there. It's just insane. And uh, until Brady and Manning came along, he was pretty much the undisputed greatest quarterback of all time. He owned the decade of the 80s. He and the 49ers owned the decade of the 80s. Four-time Super Bowl champs, you mentioned. Three-time Super Bowl MVP. Two-time MVP. Five-time All-Pro. Uh, on every you know anniversary team of the greatest players of all time. And maybe, I mean, this gets lost because it's been so long, but maybe the greatest clutch player of all time. He never lost a Super Bowl. I mean, Brady's lost Super Bowls. Peyton Manning lost Super Bowls. It, it was when it came down to it, he was the guy that always came through. And it seemed like he just had this charmed life thing. I want I want to quiz you real quick, Kyle. In the 1979 NFL draft, who was the first quarterback taken? Uh, Ken O'Brien. <laughs> no, it was Jack Thompson, who no, no one's ever heard of. And and to think that 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 Montana lasted until the third, he was the last pick of the third round, by the way, you know, so he's basically a fourth rounder. I mean, essentially is how he was valued. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's no question that he's an all-time great. So I, I agree with that. I've got him a little higher, but, but I completely agree with your assessment of him just being such a value at that point and what he brought, even if you took him number one and you got that out of him, I'd say he was an insane value because of everything you got out of him. I thought he was, he was amazing and, and continues to be a symbol of what the NFL was during that era. 
Yeah, and there was some good value in 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 that draft. Looking at it right now, Mark Gastonow went forty first. Yep. Um, there was Dan Hampton and Kellen Winslow went four and thirteen, uh, respectively. They're both in the Hall of Fame. So there was a, I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of opportunity in that in that draft. But I mean, certainly nobody like Montana. Yeah. Uh, so my sixth guy moving along is uh, the 26th pick in the first round of the 1996 NFL draft, Ray Lewis of the Baltimore Ravens. And the reason I put him in there, I know he's a first round pick, but the reason I put him in there is because Lewis's rookie year was the first year of the Ravens. And he came to define that franchise. And and they had moved from, from Cleveland, obviously, and were moving away from what had been a pretty ugly tradition at times. And they moved to this brand new, moved to a brand new city, brand new stadium, all of this stuff. And he sort of became the symbol for what they would become. And, uh, you know, there were 13 pro bowlers taken in the first round of the 1996 NFL draft. Three of them are hall of famers, but Lewis was almost undoubtedly the most impactful player. You could say Jonathan Ogden, who was also taken by the Ravens, uh, was maybe one of the greatest offensive tackles of all time, and his career was a little bit shorter. Um, but but Lewis helped really just change the game for the Ravens defensively. They didn't have to worry about that. They just plugged him in a linebacker, and, and they always had a good defense. They were known during that era for having a ferocious defense. He helped guide them into two Super Bowl wins in 35 and 47. He was the MVP of Super Bowl 35, seven-time first, uh, seven first-team All-Pro, three-time second-teamer, won the Defensive Player of the Year twice, and is undoubtedly considered one of the top five linebackers of all time. There were not 25 players better than him in that draft, and he went 26. So I just think that, Lewis, you look at the value they got out of that pick. You know, if he's taken in the top five, maybe you argue, hey, he was top five pick. He was supposed to be that good. But 26th, when he had been a two-time All-American in Miami, what did people miss there? Because he certainly lived up to every expectation. And now, time to pay the bills. Well, you mentioned it earlier. This is one of the most talent-rich drafts that's yes. ever been done. I mean, you went Keyshawn, uh, number one. And then, interestingly enough, Kevin Hardy, number two, played similar position. Uh, They're the back-to-back Illinois guy, Illinois guys in those, that draft. That, the Illinois, that Illinois defense was incredible. But the point I guess I was trying to make is, is if you watch Hardy in college, the dude was insane. Yep. There's no doubt doubt that like it makes sense that he was the first linebacker off the line off the board uh john mobley went 15th to denver it was it was another linebacker um you're right about lewis being the heart and soul of the ravens um he in kind of built that defense on his personality i mean i think that ed reed was the most talented player uh, yes i think that's that. for sure of that unit, but but Ray came first, right? Ray Ray was he was the Ray, leader. Yeah. Ray was the leader, and he embodied that franchise, and he gave he gave it the attitude it has even to this day, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of the off the field stuff is what it is. There's there's no real like you almost got to like separate the artist from the uh, from the art at at this point. But I think I think it's a great I think it's a great choice because. I would quibble if it's like someone in the top 10. I was trying to figure out what my line is for this, mm-hmm. right? Like if you sure. pick an incredible person in the top 15, it's kind of like, 
Yeah, I mean, it was a great draft pick, but again, that's that's basically like a lottery pick if it was uh, if it was the NBA. But but twenty six to put it in context, it's kind of like if the Spurs uh, when they were good and got eliminated in the conference finals, uh, if they somehow s- snagged the best player of the draft, like you know, Tim Duncan like, at that point, right? If they had gotten Tim Duncan at twenty six, in a lot of ways, I mean, there's probably you know honestly the same time frame. Duncan's career and Lewis's career that uh, kind of built around a defensive structure around it. There's a lot of similarities there actually. Uh, but again, with Duncan, he was number one. He was overall, it was like a can't miss. Uh, with, Everyone with knew for three months he was going to be the number one pick kind of thing. Yeah. I remember reading about that tattoo. He had that, that surfer tattoo on his, on his shoulder in sports illustrated. It was a big thing. Don't remember reading a lot about Lewis, although I'm sure any journalism that was done about him is more interesting than, uh, than work that was done on Duncan. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's a lot to mine there. So who my you num- got it? Who you got at number six, Kyle? All right. My number six is not a household name and I'll be honest. I don't really know all that much about him uh, besides what I found on, on the internet, but I do think for my purposes, I have to put him on the list. So my number six is Rosie Brown. He was an offensive tackle for the New York giants. He was drafted in 1953. I'm going to say this in the 27th round, 321st overall, you mentioned a 30 round draft earlier. We're talking about someone who went in the 27th. I mean, that is, crazy he went on to be a six-time first team all pro and a three-time second team all pro he was anchor of that line we're talking about the Gifford Giants we're talking about the greatest game ever played we're talking about that era uh yet the anchor of of a unit out there when you're basically throwing it away like this is this is kind of like the base or this is this is kind of the football version of Mike Piazza, right? Like someone from the 62nd round or whatever becomes this generational talent. And you're like, yeah, we got an absolute steal here. So I'm not expecting us to have a long Rosie Brown uh, <laughs> conversation that that probably isn't something that you were locked and loaded to have. Uh, but I just thought it was, I just thought it was so, it's so interesting uh, that I mean, I'm looking at like all conference, all all pros, all this stuff. He's a member of the, he's a member of the NFL hundred all time team. So yeah, at some point, if they said he was one of the top hundred players to ever play in the NFL and he was taken 121st in his in his in his draft, that says something. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to look at him and say that he went to Morgan State and he probably wasn't scouted. You know, that's probably how he slipped so far in the draft because he was such a skilled guy. And 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 back then, scouting then wasn't what it is now where they're at every game and have video of everybody. So it's probably a lot easier for guys like that, just an offensive lineman, to slip through the cracks. Yeah, I mean, what... Like, it's funny to even consider... It's funny to even consider what that looked like. Was there some, like, database of offensive linemen from Morgan State grades? Like, think of how far we've come where, like, almost 70 years later, you have every Joe in, like, Lincoln, Nebraska talking about, like, cone times for someone who, who went to, like, Murray State or something ridiculous. And back then, it was kind of like, yeah, we saw this guy. They might not have seen him play. There is a chance that one person in the organization saw him play. There's a very good chance that nobody in the organization had ever seen him play live. And it just like got word of mouth or was doing a buddy for was doing a favor for a coach. It's pretty outrageous to think about, 
how at that point of the draft back then they were throwing spaghetti at the wall. Uh, but if you know, it's sports, one of those is going to stick. Yeah. Uh, so my number five on this one is going to be controversial. I know it will be controversial, but we're going to talk it out. Uh, I've got Lawrence Taylor, who was the number two pick of the 1981 NFL draft by the New York giants. Again, number two pick being one of the best picks ever. I, I understand it's going to be controversial, but I think it's worth noting that seven of the first eight picks in that draft were pro bowlers and three made the hall of fame and the giants picked the right one. And let's be real. He was a revolutionary player who changed the, the game for defensive linemen changed football. The, the edge rusher was essentially created by Lawrence Taylor three-time defensive player of the year, including in both of his first two seasons in the league. He was a 10-time Pro Bowler. He won the MVP as a defender in 1986. He helped the Giants win two Super Bowls. He's in the Hall of Fame. And he also basically played himself in any given Sunday and had a cameo in the Sopranos, which is completely unrelated to the topic, but I feel like I had to mention it. Uh, So Lawrence Taylor, he again was a guy like Montana who was the 49ers in the 80s. Lawrence Taylor was the Giants in the 80s. And I feel like no matter where in the draft, if you get that guy who is revolutionary and changes the game and is, you know, can define your franchise, that that I think it's it's certainly a huge value. I'm not going to push back too hard on this. I think this is actually a pretty good call for, from you. I think you talk about taking maybe the best defensive player ever. Uh, you should get some plaudits for that. It's funny how you mentioned his um you mentioned his media appearances and his in his television appearances and the way he was able to be a larger than life personality so new york figuring out that he could handle that and that he would thrive there is tremendous work right like it, it all looks so smart in in retrospect and it was like this is a no-brainer this made all the sense in the world. It would have been a shame if they didn't draft him, but how do you, how do you sit there? I mean, how do you realistically sit there in your draft room and be like, we're going to take someone who is going to win the MVP as a defensive player. We're going to take someone who is going to play, who is so far ahead of the the game. You know what I mean? Like he, he was, he was playing like 20 years ahead of, of his era. Right. Like he had this skill set. It was like, like, I mean, obviously they saw that, but even in their wildest dreams, they could not have envisioned that they were getting him. Um, but, but you're exactly right. I will, I will allow it. I'm not going to fight you too much on this. I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a great, I think it's a great pick. And I think there's something to be said about if all these franchises can be scrutinized and, and thrown over the coals for ruining their number one picks or botching their number two picks or whatever it might be. They should also, you should also be able to praise them uh, when they get it right. And I think a lot of times too, I think a lot of times picking two and three in the draft is harder than picking one. Right. Cause lots yeah, of, of course. times it's like yeah. a defining number one character. And it's like, it's, you'd be like, okay, well it takes the pressure off us because we have to take this person. Right. And number two, you have all the options, but one, and usually it gets a little bit messier as, as you move down. And I think that the, the, the number two spot can be a really, really hard uh, place to be because by definition, you're going to be leaving so many fantastic talents on the board that you're going to have infinite what ifs because all but one were available to you. 
Well, and it's really interesting to look back at that draft in 1981 and see how much football has changed because George Rogers, a running back, went number one, and Freeman McNeil, a running back, went number three, and Lawrence Taylor was sandwiched in between them. And, and it's just crazy to think how football changes. Uh, for, for reference, Kenny Easley, a Hall of Fame safety, went fourth. EJ Jr., a Pro Bowl linebacker, went fifth. Rich Campbell, it was the Packers trying to find their quarterback. He didn't do much. Uh, seventh was Hugh Green, a linebacker from Pitt who made Pro Bowls. And number eight in that draft was Ronnie Lott, another Hall of Famer. So that is a loaded top eight of the draft, uh, which I think is is really crazy to think that Lawrence Taylor uh, fit in at number two there, looking in hindsight. You had uh, Bart Starr at number five. Any, any more you want to add on Bart, Kyle? Great name. I mean, yeah, great name, Bart Starr. I mean, you it's, it's like a movie quarterback name. It is. His last name was Starr. Like, it's kind of amazing he didn't play for the Cowboys because you have yeah. to figure, like, Jerry. if Jerry Jones was to create someone in a lab, his name would, his name would be Bart Starr. Uh, but no, I, I think I think we we covered it pretty well there. Do you want me to go four? Or would you? Like well, to- I'll go. I'll go to my number four, and we'll go to yours next. Um, I my number four is Roger Staubach, uh, who I think is also going to be on your list, and it's an easy pick. He was a tenth round pick. He was the 129th pick of the 1964 NFL draft uh, by the Dallas Cowboys. He won a Heisman Trophy in 1963, and for people who don't know this, he then served in the Navy as a lieutenant in Vietnam from 65 to 69. So when the Cowboys actually signed him after the draft, they had to sign him to a futures contract because they knew he wouldn't be able to play right away in. He returned to the Cowboys in 1969 and became a six time pro bowler, led the Cowboys to two Super Bowls, cement, sort of cemented the the franchise's status as America's team. Cause he went to Navy and he was sort of the all American guy who had served in the military and now was a star quarterback. And he helped, you know, one of those guys who helped sort of inch the NFL towards an air attack as opposed to just an all-running system. He led the NFL in passer rating five times and became a Hall of Famer. And to get that at the 129th pick and have to wait for him for four years, uh, you know, or or five, essentially five years, uh, is pretty incredible. And it was a gamble by the Cowboys at that point, and it completely paid off because he is the, when you think of the Cowboys, you think of Troy Aikman and Roger Staubach at quarterback. Those are the two quarterbacks. You hit the, you, you spoke, perfectly about this. And I have, I have Staubach at, at two um, because I think he birthed the cowboy, the modern Cowboys franchise, right? You, you alluded to it, making it America's team. It started with him, the all American guy. He in a way is like football's Ted Williams, an amazing, amazing talent that had several years of his career cut off because he was doing military service. It's kind of shocking to think about what kind of career he could have. Um, num- is so high up on my list because the risk was incredible, right? You knew yes. you knew that stock might never be the prospect. Like in what world, let, let me just do a, some quick math here. Born in 72, his first, his first game with the Cowboys was 69. In what world would you wait for a quarterback to be 27 to play his first game for your franchise now? Like, that's absurd. That's unheard of now. They're like, okay, we're going to put our faith in this. We're going to use the number two pick. And he more than delivered on it. And he had the moxie and he had the brain and he had like the mindset to do it. So I think for all those factors, I think that this pick is absolutely 
unreal. Like it's just, it's yeah. just shocking. Well, yeah, he was, he was college football's best player. And then that you're right about the risk because they had to, you, they knew he was not going to be able to serve right away. He would play right away. Cause he had to go serve. And so it is a huge gamble, but that's why they took it in the 10th round as opposed to the first round. But I think, I think without that factor, he goes, of course, much earlier, but the fact that the Cowboys were willing to gamble and wait for their quarterback is, is pretty incredible. And it paid off. And that's what makes it such a, a great draft pick is they were willing to take that risk and willing to, I mean, could you imagine drafting Trevor Lawrence this year and knowing that he's not going to play for five years? I mean, who would do that? Quite frankly, I just don't, I don't think it happens today. Honestly, maybe a a more realistic comparison would be like uh, the jets taking Zach Wilson at, at number two and then saying, yeah, I'm going to go on a prolonged Mormon mission. Like it's, I'm trying to even wrap my mind around what, what, what could, what could happen? Like, it's tough to even, it's tough to even, what would that Compare look like it. in today's world yeah. where well, like, it's like, I'm going to be a TikTok star for four years. Like, I just, I can't even, I can't even fathom what, what that would look like in, in, in everybody. We, and what we, what do we know about the NFL now? And it would actually, you know what, here's the thing. It would never happen again because knowing what we know about what the NFL does to people's bodies, no player would ever take that risk. You have to get out there and you have to get your contract and you have to get paid while your body is in peak physical condition because you can't wait around because nothing is, is, is promised tomorrow. So I have it at number two. I'm very happy that he's on your list. I think he's one of the more underrated athletes of our time because he was, I mean, he's, he's captain America, right? Like, yeah, I mean, he, it's like, yeah, he was the guy. He's the guy that every, you know, the, the, the classic Mr. America athlete. And, and that's why, again, we mentioned it, but that's why the Cowboys became America's team. They just had Mr. America at quarterback. So uh, who's your number four? I got a little guy named Jerry Rice Great on call. my list. And you'll be happy. I'm going even higher in the draft. I'm going 16th overall in the 1985 NFL draft by the San Francisco 49ers. They got him to pair with Joe Montana. The rest is history. I mean, the greatest wide receiver to ever play. Um, As long as they play football, I'm going to say that he's the greatest wide receiver that's ever played it. I can't imagine anybody ever usurping that crown from him because the way he did it in the era that he did it, like you can't compare. You simply can't compare. Stats will never tell the story, right? Like this was the guy, he was unstoppable. And if they had been airing the ball out every play in those days, God knows what type of numbers they would have put up. It's, 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 we mentioned Montana's four Super Bowls earlier, right? Rice is responsible just as much as Montana for that because, well, there were other weapons. That offense doesn't work without the threat that Rice was, right? Like they were using that West Coast offense, and we, West Coast offense became such a in vogue thing for a while. Um, but the most successful team to ever run it remains the San Francisco 49ers. And the reason for that is because no team has been able to replicate Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. So they saw the value. And the biggest thing here too, is that it wasn't like Rice was playing his, his college football on, on the big stage. Yep. He, he, it's not like he was playing his college football on the Mississippi Valley State University, which is 
a directional school. It sounds like something you would drive by. They would barely have a sign. Uh, but at this point, we're talking about where scouting got to the level that it was good enough for people to know that this is kind of like he might you might miss on this prospect because because as he plays tougher talent, his numbers might go down. But we have something that we can make work here. And it's kind of cool, too, to think of Rice in that way as not just the greatest to ever do it, but there's kind of like echoes of that small school stuff, like in the Belichick thing, right? Like I know that he gets, he got, he gets like Edelman stuff from Kent state. And again, apples to oranges when uh, on draft position, but it seems like wide receiver is a position where the NFL is really willing to test people out because it is such an individual position where, Oh, you're out here on an Island going one on one against a defender. Who cares if you went to Purdue or if you went to UCLA or if you know what I mean, or if you went to like Wheaton, a college in, in <laughs> Illinois or a small school like that, if you can beat your man off the line, it doesn't matter when you're open in yeah. the open field. They're not asking to see you like both days as you run down the, as you run down the field. I never thought we'd get a Wheaton reference on this podcast, but I'm all for it. Here's the thing about, about rice that you, all you have to know, there's all the stats, all the numbers, whatever. He was a two time NFL offensive player of the year as a receiver. Receivers don't get that honor because they have quarterbacks throwing them the ball and everyone just defaults to the quarterback. And so him getting recognized as the best offensive player in the NFL during his career is, is amazing. And you, you talk about all of those, you know, 49ers teams that were amazing. He also had to share the ball with John Taylor. You know, they, they had a great running game for a long time. I mean, he wasn't the only guy in that offense, yet he still put up those ridiculous numbers in an era where they don't throw the way they do now. And the other thing is he played from 1985 until 2004. He, you know, I mean, he played forever. And, and certainly, I agree with you, at 16, it's still plenty of value at that spot. I mean, you got the greatest receiver of all time and you paired him with arguably at the time until, you know, a couple of years ago, the guy who was pretty much viewed as the greatest quarterback of all time as well. So I love that pick. I think it's a great one, Kyle. So uh, number three for me was Joe Montana. We discussed him. So it's on to your pick at number three. So my number three pick is Deacon Jones. Really and good. you mentioned earlier Lawrence Taylor and how he changed the game defensively. Deacon Jones was a defensive end also way ahead of his time. Right. And he was also kind of gregarious. He was also, he also had a TV career. He had a big personality and he was, he was, he was in Los Angeles at a time where it was like Hollywood was really kind of embracing uh, the athlete crossover at this time. So in a lot of ways, he was a trailblazer. Um, the particulars on him, 14th round pick in 1961. He went n- number 186 overall, five-time first-team All-Pro, two-time NFL Defensive Player of the Year. He was a freak at that position. Uh, he was he was good in pass coverage. He was good at rushing the passer. Uh, he he was a and in what he was he was just a cool player, right? Like it was like he was this he was this guy that like. I don't think that defensive players defense was always about effort. It was never about flash. It was never about style. Uh, it, it, it was more of a substance thing. And I think that Jones was a stylistic player and he kind of opened people's eyes to a lot of uh, things that would ha- be coming in, in the future. And 
we're talking about, I mean, that's the 14th round. That's not the 27th round, but that is deep in the draft. Yeah. And, and Deacon Jones obviously became a huge uh, piece of, of Los Angeles football back then. And he was pretty, a huge part of the NFL, but you look at, you know, they didn't really keep sack numbers back then, but they have, I, I saw something with unofficial sack totals uh, listed. I just looked it up. He had 21 and a half one year, 22, 15, 18, 19, 22. I mean, so these are numbers that when they played fewer games back then would eclipse, you know, the great, at guys who are playing now and, and, you know, the JJ Watts and the, the, the Lawrence Taylors and those guys. Uh, so he was on, on the level of those guys as well, just an all time, great two time defensive player of the year. Uh, and, and certainly at 14, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of sad. I missed him when I was doing this. I think that's, I think, I think you absolutely nailed it uh, with, with bringing him in. Well, I mean, great draft back in 1961 too at five and six back to back. This is, absolutely amazing you have mike dicka and jimmy johnson wow how about that <laughs> i mean that's just absolutely incredible you have four hall of famers in the in the top 14 uh and then fran tarkenton goes 29th so five hall of famers in the first round of that draft is pretty impressive yeah that's 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 unbelievable can i ask you can i ask you a question you can. Does it? When's the last time we've ever had a draft where you've walked away and be like, you know, there's probably five Hall of Famers in that first round. Like it's it's that rare, feels like something man. that doesn't happen anymore. No, you know the the last time I think I remember thinking that there's going to be a lot of Hall of Famers in this first first round was 2004 when it was Philip Rivers, Eli Manning, and Ben Roethlisberger being picked in the first round. I thought all of them would be good, and they wound up all being good. Um, and I, you know, but I mean, I don't remember a draft where I walked away thinking, oh, these guys, are. you know what? Oh, Andrew Luck's year. I think that there was a lot of people who thought Robert Griffin, the third would be good. They, they, of course, thought Trent Richardson would be a stud. They thought, you know, Matt Khalil was supposed to be the next great offensive tackle. And and it just didn't work out for those guys. It really didn't. But that top I remember hearing, you know, the top six of this draft is one of the best top sixes we've ever had. And really, none of them lived up to expectation. Morris Claiborne is a cornerback who's supposed to be the next great shutdown corner. Um, none of them lived up to the heights. I mean, Andrew Luck had a very nice career and, and quit early because of injuries, obviously. But he didn't become Peyton Manning, which was what he was billed as. You know, So none of those guys really lived up to it. Uh, I pulled up that 2004 draft. Eli Manning, Larry Fitzgerald, Philip Rivers, Sean Taylor, uh, D'Angelo Hall, Ben Roethlisberger, Jonathan Vilma, and uh, who else? Vince Wilfork, um, Stephen Jackson, great running back. So there was that, that was a great draft there I think we can look at. Nobody in the Hall of Fame yet, though. Let's pause for a second to make some money. Uh, all right, so we're up to number two now, and this is where it's going to get interesting. So my number two which I'm sure is everybody listening's number one is Tom Brady, the 199th pick of the sixth round of the 2000 NFL draft for the new England Patriots. Uh, Brady's statistics are what they are. He's the greatest value pick in NFL history. I would agree. 
the greatest quarterback of all time, a three-time MVP, seven-time Super Bowl champion. He won six with New England, who drafted him. I think that's an important distinction. Uh, 14 Pro Bowls, a unanimous selection to the 2010s All-Decade team. He also made the 2000s All-Decade team, and it was a unanimous pick for the NFL's 100th anniversary team. Uh, I don't have him number one for some very specific reasons, but it certainly could be argued that he's the greatest draft pick of all time and the greatest NFL player of all time and certainly the greatest quarterback of all time. Well, in the words of Howard Stern, you've said so much there. And (laughs) the thing about Tom Brady is we could talk about him all day. Um, He's number one on my list. I, I look forward to seeing who you have. Number one. Uh, It's, it's a mystery to me. Uh, I, cause I almost feel like it's uh, you know, you're precluded from putting anybody else there. Uh, But I I think that Tom Brady, more than everything that you said, has become the symbol of a hardworking guy makes good. A you can find this piece late in the draft that can change everything. I think he's I think he's a major reason why the NFL draft has exploded in popularity. I think his story in particular of hey, you do need to stick around and watch all six rounds because who knows which one of these guys that gets selected is going to be the next Tom Brady. Now, is that logical or reasonable? 97% of the people taken after the fifth round or whatever are never going to uh be productive in the NFL? No, but it's a great story to tell. Uh, and, and I think that that's, he's been the, he's, as good as he's been for football and keeping interest in football going on Sundays, he's been great for the off season. You talk about, is he going to keep playing? Yes. But also his tentacles are in the NFL draft for the same reason that I said, it's like, how do we get the next Tom Brady? How do we build someone who's like this? Who can we go and get that is one day going to like point to him and and being like, this is the model I followed. And it doesn't have to just be a quarterback, right? Like Tom Brady's story resonates more with people at every position. Even if it's someone went, if a, if a, if a linebacker went in the fifth round and, and is, and is made good. Well, linebackers might know that, but the easiest narrative and the easiest example to point to is Tom Brady. Right. So he's become a stand in for all these guys and doing this project, looking back and, and finding those Deacon Jones or finding a Rosie Brown who went in the 27th round. It was almost like Tom Brady has superseded them as kind of like the avatar of who that is. Like he embodied them all. And it's like, this is Tom Brady's the natural culmination of all of that. And, and that just kind of speaks to what he's done to the game of football. Uh, he sucks up all the oxygen in the room and not, not really in a negative way, but because we've never seen an athlete like this. Uh, and then he continues to find new ways to invent himself onto the particulars about the team that drafted him. No team has benefited more than sticking with someone than the Patriots. Famously, there was the decision between he and Drew Bledsoe. Belichick is Belichick because he made the correct one. Uh, If history goes a little bit differently and they go back to Bledsoe, does Tom Brady become a thing? Maybe not. So we're talking about the margins of his story. Uh, If if Bledsoe doesn't get hurt, how long until Brady gets a starting opportunity there or, or someplace else. So we're talking about the margins of this stuff and the, 
the winding web of things that need to happen in order for like people late in the draft to become superstars or even at the top to become superstars. There's a lot can go wrong. And so much of it is just kind of like either, either luck or, or what's going on in circumstance. And Tom Brady is the, is the perfect example of everything as great as he is. Everything fell into place for him. Let's not, let's not forget that he was, he landed in the perfect spot to maximize his, uh, skills and his capabilities. If he goes to the Lions, he doesn't become Tom Brady. It's only because he's uh, with a forward-thinking franchise that figured out what he was and wasn't afraid to put its neck on the line for him. So Tom Brady is my number one. Uh, and and I, I've I've when you told me you didn't have Tom Brady one, I was kind of like I can't wait to see where this is going. Uh, and, and and now that the time is here, I I don't know. I feel like nervous <laughs> and a little bit. Unclear well, who, what to do with my hands, so you might as well, you might as well hit me with it. Well, do who is your number two? We got to get your number two first. My number two is Roger Staubach. Oh, that's right. Earlier. Okay, Mr. okay. America so we went through for, that. for the Cowboys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had forgotten that. Uh, yeah. So my number one is is going to cause a little controversy here on the best of seven. Uh, it's Peyton Manning at number one of the nineteen ninety eight NFL draft for the Indianapolis Colts, and and here is my reasoning there was so much pressure on the Colts to get that draft pick, right? And people will say, Oh, well, they were obviously going to take him over Ryan leaf at the time. That was not the case. Ryan leaf was one of the greatest physical specimens to come into the NFL at quarterback. Peyton Manning had some questions. He was a little skinny for his size. There were questions about his overall arm strength. He had happy feet in the pocket. He did, you know, he didn't, he wasn't this great technician that he became and looking back, it's obvious, but there was a ton of pressure to get this right because the Colts were a terrible franchise for decades. They were awful. They were a laughing stock. They were at the bottom of the NFL constantly. And Manning was the guy who could have transformed that for them. They needed to get the quarterback pick right. They were made fun of by Mel Kuyper on television for being bad drafters one year. So when they got this pick right, over two decades later, they still regularly make the postseason. It changed their what they look like as a franchise. And here's the other thing I will say is that he took them in two Super Bowls. They won their first in Indianapolis at Super Bowl. Uh, what was it? 41. He broke virtually every passing record, won four MVPs in, in Indianapolis, was a Pro Bowl eight times, and then went on to great in Denver. But that doesn't apply to, to Indy. But here's my point. Does anybody remember the team who passed on Brady one pick before they took him? No, it was St. Louis and they drafted safety Matt Bowen out of Iowa. If you screw up Peyton Manning, everybody remembers that you didn't take Peyton Manning. And I think that the pressure on them was at such a level that if they screwed that up, it would have buried the franchise for, they take Ryan Leaf. It buries the franchise for another decade. Instead, they got a guy who, when he retired, was considered, along with Brady, the two, one of the two best quarterbacks of all time. I, I just think it would have been such a high-profile miss that I think it was the best pick ever. Well, first and foremost, I as excited as you were about my Wheaton reference earlier, I'm doubly excited about Matt Bowen. Uh, <laughs> he, wrote a, he wrote a piece. Uh, he wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times when I was there. He was an excellent writer, very smart football guy. Uh, wasn't expecting to hear his name in this podcast. And I didn't know that his connection uh, with Brady was like that. I, that's, that's, that's crazy to me. 
Um, you've built an incredible sports radio argument. Um, and, and, and by bringing up Ryan Leaf and what could have gone wrong, uh, you make an excellent point. And it really just comes down to perspective, right? Like, is it about getting the best player at the, at the best time? And, and certainly there was no pressure on the Patriots for Tom Brady, right? So if, yeah. you, if you take into mind that franchises are constantly under a certain level of pressure and when you don't have that, it's kind of like the stakes are really low. Well, the stakes were really high in the year that you were talking about. And, and I'll say this. I thought Leaf was incredible. Like I watched him in the Rose Bowl. I so, loved yeah. his moxie. I was just like, this dude is a badass. Like Peyton Manning I, in, in college. I, I mean, I was young, but I, I remember the Peyton Manning thing was kind of like, yeah, he's he's fantastic. He's the pedig- He has the pedigree. He seemed a little goofy. He like did. He didn't really have like that fire in his belly. I mean, obviously, we know that he had it, uh, uh, but he was kind of like more cerebral, uh, like that. And and honest, did Peyton Manning win? Uh, I know that I know that Ryan Leaf went to the to the Rose Bowl, but did Peyton Manning win? I mean, he did, but they didn't they didn't win a championship. And he was he came back to college to win a championship and they didn't win it. And then they went and won it with T. Martin the next year. So when I remember during Peyton Manning's rookie year, it was coming out like, well, maybe it was the team that was really good. But I mean, obviously, Peyton went on to prove that wrong. So you're, you're I, I think I think that. I understand where your argument's coming from. And I think that it, it, it makes sense for a certain level. It's just, I see it differently. Right. I think that Brady was a better quarterback than Manning. And he was also taken in the sixth round. And more than that, when they went head to head, Brady won most of the time too. So like, there's a lot of different layers and it's amazing to me that you brought that up because I, I don't, I don't think that you're wrong. It's just, it's just a value thing. And it's a two different ways of looking at it. And it's instructive too, because what the conversations we're having, what do we value? What, what do we, how do we think the assessment should be done? Uh, well, the subject matter is different. The process is not entirely different than what NFL franchises are thinking about in those rooms. Like, what do we value in a player? Like, what should, what should we weigh? What should we ignore? Like, should we listen to outside opinion? Should we go with the consensus? All that stuff. So like our conversation here has been a small microcosm of all the things that organizations need to approach when they're, when they're doing the NFL draft. And as you rightly point out a point in your favor, if that pick is going to be subject to intense scrutiny, because it's the first overall pick as opposed to the 190th well then that's a pretty good argument in your camp and uh i'm glad i'm glad you uh i'm glad you thought outside the box because i think that it's definitely uh an interesting angle yeah and i knew these would be the, the thing i love about this show is we don't talk about what our criteria is beforehand we just say do the best draft picks and then we each come out of different ways you mentioned early on and i think that it's really interesting to sort of see how somebody else breaks this down and, and, and thinks about the same topic as you and, and kind of, you know, susses out how they're going to do things. And uh, I don't know. I, I think it is an interesting exercise. And I agree that obviously I, I've heard the arguments for years that Brady's the most, the, the best pick. And, and I, you know, it's hard to disagree because of the value you got, but if the Patriots pass on him and somebody else gets him, nobody's going to be mad at Bill Belichick about that, you know? And, and so that was always, but also 
let's be real that Brady, I think, and Belichick were such a perfect marriage that maybe Brady doesn't become Brady if he doesn't go there. And and for the Colts, maybe Peyton Manning doesn't become what he became if he's in San Diego or in somewhere else uh, working for a different owner, working for a different franchise. So uh, it really all – it's all hindsight, but at the same time, I, th- I think it's really interesting uh, to break these down. And, and the draft is such a crapshoot anyway that that it's really interesting to to sort of look back years later and, and understand uh, where things went. All right, Kyle. Well, what do you have as final thoughts for this one? Well, my final thoughts are there's value in every position on a draft board, right? And we started this discussion talking about whether I was my interest in the NFL draft, right? And how I talked about how it wasn't something that I'm really locked into. But in the process of thinking about things the way that we did, I kind of see that yes, it does matter these fourth round picks because they can be a hall of famer. Like I bristle at the idea. Anybody is going to know that in the moment. I think the uh, industrial complex of like pre and post draft analysis is, is, is fairly bloated and, and largely unchecked. And that kind of turns me off, but the actual mechanics of getting players on a team, like I, I I think that there's, I'm under, I'm undervaluing um, the thoughts that go into it. And as we all kind of undervalue it, right? Like if, if there's a stud player taking fourth overall and, and Mel Kuyper gets on there and Kirk Herbstreet talk about how they're going to be an immediate impact player and blah, blah, blah. For the rest of that player's career, almost, we put that expectation on them. The first narrative is the thing that follows them around through their career and and is kind of really hard for them to shake, but it's such a small part of the process because everything that leads up to the draft is them getting in the draft. Right. And then once they're selected, it doesn't matter whether they were selected in the second round, third round, or fourth round, we put so much value on it going into it that we get obsessed about where they went. And while my list uh, focused more on the values didn't matter in the huddle that Bart Starr went late or, or Tom Brady or whatever. It was more valuable to the team. It probably helped them in the long run. But once you put the uniform on, you're kind of all equals. That's a great point. And, and, and you know, a guy's draft position determines how much money he makes early on, and it determines what expectations there are. But once you're on the field, you're on the field and everybody, you know, there's sort of an equalizing effect. And you might, you know, if you're a high draft pick, you might get more opportunities from memorization because they invested so much in you. But if you don't play well on the field, you're not going to last. And and a guy I mentioned earlier, Trent Richardson, was a guy who, you know, certainly didn't last because he didn't perform on the field to a certain level. And there were guys who were much lower draft picks who took took his spot. And so uh, you're right. And, and it really is a great equalizer getting on that football field. So uh, everybody, we would uh, thank you for, for listening to this week's episode. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found. And while you're there, subscribe to Kyle's podcast, the Kyle Coster Show. Our thanks to producer Sean Daly for his tireless work editing this together because we're not exactly the cleanest broadcasters in the world every week. Uh, and stay tuned to the big lead for all the greatest sports. We'll be back with an, another episode soon.